0: Something that I miss from my childhood is organized and competitive sports and just that feeling of being a part of a team. Uh, But something I don't miss from my childhood is the tryouts and sitting on the bench. I'm sure that many of us know that feeling, what it's like to ride the bench at some point in our childhood sports careers. It can be awkward and it's just not really any fun. But they say it builds character, so I hear. I grew up playing hockey. That was my sport, still is. It's hands down, objectively, the best sport ever. But for some reason, uh, sophomore year of high school, I decided to join the football team. And I, this is my first time playing, so I didn't really know the rules all the way. I didn't know what position I wanted to play. I didn't It wasn't very big, I was pretty small, and so naturally I made JV, and I spent most of the season riding the bench, Uh, but before the season started, we had a scrimmage against another high school uh, nearby, and so I went, and the coach called me off the bench and into the game, and I was playing cornerback, and so I had my guy picked out, and the ball went up, and I jumped, and somehow, miraculously, I caught it, I intercepted the ball, and I landed, and I just stood there. I didn't move my feet, and my whole team is yelling at me to run, and I just stood there. I thought, oh, it's a scrimmage, maybe I shouldn't like, rub it in their face. You know? I don't know what I thought, but I didn't move my feet. And my coach comes up, and he yells, friendly, he says, Dupree. Everyone gets my last name wrong. He says, Dupree, do you need me to map Quest you e directions to the end zone? <laughs> and so it was a good laugh, and I mean, all that to say is I spent a lot of time on the bench, especially when I played football. But I always got that thrill, though, when you get called off the bench into the game that you're a part of something bigger than yourself. There's, there's a sense of satisfaction, of, of belonging. And so today we're going to read a story about the 12 disciples finally getting called off the bench and into the game. And they've been following Jesus around, witnessing his teaching and his miracles, and finally Jesus says, you're in. Jesus calls them, he equips them, and he sends them out. And so before we jump into our passage today, here's our big truth. Those who place their faith in Jesus will be empowered for ministry and will experience satisfaction now and forever. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 1 through 17. Last week... Zach preached on the end of Luke chapter 8, which was Jesus healing a woman with a discharge of blood and raising a young girl from the dead. And today, we're going to read through this text in three sections. First, we're going to read about the Apostles' very first mission. Next, we're going to read about uh, Herod's confusion and his very, very important question, who is Jesus? Jesus. And then lastly, we're going to read a familiar passage about Jesus feeding the five thousands. And so, Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And wherever, whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there departs. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And so here we see Jesus calls the twelve He gives them power and authority and he sends them out. This is reminiscent of Luke chapter 6 where Jesus goes away to pray about who his apostles are going to be and he comes down from the mountain and he calls them to himself. These are the ones who are appointed and sent by Jesus to preach the gospel and to build his kingdom, his church. And in verses 1 through 17, we're going to see that the term the 12 is interchangeable with the term apostles. And up until this point, They have only observed Jesus in his ministry. They've witnessed his miracles. They've witnessed his healings, the way he casts out demons, the way he loved and welcomed others. But now Jesus calls them off the bench into the game. He calls them to their first mission, to travel town to town, proclaiming the kingdom of God and healing those in need. Jesus supplies them with power and authority, If you think back to Luke chapter 3, when Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit descends upon him and empowers Jesus for his ministry. And in this story, it's only been Jesus who's preached. It's only been Jesus who's healed and cast out demons. And now he passes the baton to the apostles for the first time. They are empowered for ministry. They have Jesus' power and authority to preach, to heal, and to cast out demons. So I bet they're feeling pretty good at this point. But then he tells them how to pack for their journey. He says, don't take a staff, uh, don't take a bag, don't take any money, don't take any food, just take the tunic that's on your back. How's that for light packing? Anybody in here a light packer? Anybody? Not many. I know, packing light is very, very hard. And there's no shame if you end up packing your whole closet when you go on a weekend trip. Jesus makes packing for this trip really easy. He just says, don't bring anything. You're good with the shirt on your back. You're good to go. And the 12 here, they're supplied for ministry in one sense. They have Jesus' power and authority, but they lack any sort of resources, any sort of supplies for their mission. And so in this sense, they will only be supplied and provided for based on their trust and dependence on Jesus. To provide for them. And as we read this text, we have to remember that this was a specific mission and specific empowering given to the 12 disciples. There's not a one for one correlation with us today. We need to keep in mind that we are not among the 12 apostles. But with that said, there's still a lot of great application that we can draw from this story and apply it to our own lives because. Really, our mission is quite similar in a lot of ways. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he tells his disciples in Matthew 28, "...all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Here we see the Christian mission. Preach the gospel and make disciples. And we can't disconnect service and love for others from this. Jesus and his 12 apostles preached the kingdom of God and healed. Healing was an act of service and love, right? And so our gospel proclamation should be accompanied by love. Jesus, before his death, tells his disciples that love must be their motto. In John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And we, like the apostles, are also empowered for ministry. Actually, we are more equipped than they were. In Luke's second book, The Acts of the Apostles, Luke records for us Jesus' ascension into heaven, and just before his ascension, he tells his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So the Holy Spirit filled the followers of Jesus on the day of Pentecost, and it is no different for us today. When we repent, of our sin and we place our faith in Jesus we are filled with and sealed by the holy spirit christ lives in us through the spirit and this confirms what jesus says in the great commission behold i am with you always until the end of the age and so in luke chapter 9 where we are at this point of the story the apostles did not yet have the spirit of god living and dwelling inside of them so we have been supplied with everything that we need to live out our Christian mission. It's not in our own strength and power and resources that we will be successful. No, it's in the power of Jesus that we will be successful in our mission. And having this mission, to preach the gospel, to make disciples and to love others, given to us by Jesus, gives our lives immense purpose. And I think purpose is something that all of us wants. It's something that is often found lacking. I think the secular world struggles to answer the question, why do I live? And even we as Christians, right, we often try to find purpose in the things of this world. We try to find purpose in careers, climbing the ladder, earning a promotion, getting higher pay. We often try to find purpose relationally. Our purpose is tied to our relationship status, single, dating, married. Relational purpose can also include friendships, who we are seen with, what our friends think of us. Purpose can also be found in becoming a parent or how well we parent. And then we play this comparison game with others. Or for many, I think that we just often lack purpose When we're just going through the daily grind, day in and day out, in mundane jobs and routines and schedules, I think instinctually we have a longing to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. This is why we want to be part of the team. But the things that we pursue do not give us purpose, they do not last. Jesus calls us into something bigger. We are commissioned to be kingdom builders, and that gives our life direction. It gives our life meaning and purpose and eternal significance. Jesus gives the 12 apostles specific instructions for this journey. He says in verse 4 Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. So essentially, when they arrive in a town, they're going to get to know somebody or a family and they're going to get invited in to stay with that family and they aren't to go changing their lodging accommodations. No, they're to stay put in that one home. They're not to be persuaded by a bigger and a better offer. If someone who had more wealth, who had a nicer home, asked if they wanted to come and stay with them instead, they were to say no. They were to refuse. Really, Jesus is calling them to be good guests, sincere, genuine, respectable guests. They are to minister and serve those in their home and then from there to go out into the town and minister and serve those in the town. And Jesus instructs the disciples what to do if they are not accepted. In verse five, Jesus says, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus knows that there's going to be those who reject the gospel message that the apostles are bringing. And the expression, shake the dust off, is actually an expression of judgment. Essentially, they're saying this town has rejected the gospel and will one day be condemned before God. And that's a scary and a sad reality for those who ultimately reject the gospel. But even in the face of this opposition, the apostles respond in obedience. Verse 6 says, They departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. They were thorough. They preached the gospel everywhere that they could. And I imagine they did so with boldness, with sincerity, with love, and with a sense of urgency as well. And so today, as we, as we look to the apostles' first mission, let's be reminded of our purpose and our mission. Be reminded that Jesus called you to participate in building the kingdom of God. And so maybe today you need to think about if you are on the bench or if you're in the game. Christians are given the privilege of participating in Jesus' work and ministry. Jesus tells us that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You are supplied and empowered by the Spirit of the living God for this mission. And take comforts that you do not labor in the power of yourself, but in the power of Jesus. So let's look now at the Next few verses, and this is our second big idea for today. Everyone needs to ask and answer the question, Who is Jesus? So verses 7 through 9. Now Herod, the tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others, That one of the prophets of old had arisen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. These few verses are really just an intermission between the apostles being sent out and when they return and they give Jesus their mission reports. And here we see Herod the Tetrarch, and that is Herod Antipas, is seeking to find out who Jesus is. And we were first introduced to Herod back in Luke chapter 3 when he sends John the Baptist to prison. And here, and from some other gospel accounts, we learn that he had John beheaded in some very unwholesome ways and for some unwholesome reasons. And Herod Antipas was ruler over one-third of his father Herod the Great's kingdom. So he split the rule between his other two brothers. And here we see that he has caught wind of everything that was happening. He had heard about the healings, he had heard about the miracles, he had heard about the casting out of demons, the dead being raised, and he is perplexed about who it is that is doing all of this. And as a ruler it would make sense that you'd want to know and be interested in all these miracles taking place in and around your kingdom. People are saying, John the Baptist is raised from the dead, but Herod doesn't buy it. Others are saying that the prophet Elijah had appeared, and still others thought it was other old, prophet, uh, old prophets just returning and appearing. And so Herod wants to know who this is. Who is this about whom I hear such things? Who is Jesus? This same question was asked actually back in Luke chapter 8 from the disciples themselves. After Jesus had calmed an awful storm, his disciples were terrified and they say one another, who then is this, that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Speculation and rumor has reached Herod's courts and he's curious. We see that in his curiosity, he sought to see Jesus. And we know that he actually does finally get a chance to see Jesus just prior to Jesus' death. After Jesus is arrested, he is brought before Pilate. Pilate finds him innocent. Pilate sends him to Herod. And then we read this in Luke chapter 23, verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, Because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod didn't want to hear about the kingdom of God. He just wanted to see Jesus perform some signs and miracles and wonders. Just like the question, why do I live? What's my purpose? Everyone in their lifetime will have to wrestle with the question, who is Jesus? They actually happen to be pretty similar questions, if you think about it. And notice the reports that make its way to Herod. They're all supernatural. Today, when much of the secular world tries to answer the question, who is Jesus, they do it devoid of any supernatural. People today just try to brand Jesus as a, as a moral teacher, as a, as a good teacher, as a good guy, maybe a little crazy, but genuinely a nice guy. But that's a lazy way to answer the question, who is Jesus? And it doesn't factor in eyewitness testimonies to his miracles, to his resurrection. A lot of times people ask the question, who is Jesus? But they don't want to put in the work to find out. To find out would require time and efforts. Much of our culture is marked by such apathy that critical thinking is a burden. I think that's just one reason why people fail to answer the question is because they don't want to put in the work to do it. I think another reason might be fear. People don't want to think about death. And I get that. People don't want to to think about what happens after death. I think there are a lot of times when people just say that they don't believe in God but they don't want to go down the rabbit hole then of what happens after death. They don't want to put in the work to find out who Jesus is but they also don't want to think too hard about the afterlife or lack thereof. Because that's depressing. There's no purpose in that. Or people don't want to answer the question who Jesus is because they fear what they might actually discover. If someone anticipates that this Jesus may have been the real deal, that's going to mean a radical reshifting of your life and your priorities. and desire to continue to live a self-centered, self-seeking life focused on pleasures, may overcome the desire to truly want to answer the question, who Jesus is. And so many times, people just sweep this question under the rug and just continue to live blissfully ignorant. Merely asking the question, who Jesus is, is not going to get you very far. In fact, if you merely ask the question, who Jesus is, and then spend the duration of your life not seeking the answer, it's going to be the biggest mistake that you ever make. Eternal life, full of joy and peace and fellowship with God, are yours in Christ. Eternal separation from God and condemnation are yours if you forsake the Christ. Herod's confusion about who Jesus is sets up the scene for the Apostle Peter to confess that Jesus is the Christ of God, he is the Messiah of God which is going to happen in verses 18 through 20, which we'll cover next week. But even in these next seven verses, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, we're going to see that Jesus discloses who he truly is. He is the one who will bring eternal satisfaction and fulfillment, which transitions us into our final big idea for the day, which is this. The Christian life is one of satisfaction. And so we're going to read now verses 10 through 17. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, "'Send the crowd away.' to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But Jesus said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up twelve baskets of broken pieces. So here we come to a familiar story, the feeding of the five thousand just prior to this, the 12 apostles were sent out by Jesus to preach to the towns and to heal. But now the people of the towns are coming to Jesus to be healed and to hear his preaching. And before we get into the feeding of the 5,000, you have to note a few important details here. Verse 10 tells us that the 12 apostles returns from their journey and told Jesus all that they had done. And I would have loved to have heard these stories. I'm sure they were really encouraging stories of... Uh, responding to the gospel of, of, of being healed, of having demons cast out. Would have been a really cool experience. And so next, Jesus decides that it's time for them to get away and to withdraw. And so they do so to an area near the town of Bethsaida, which is just to the north of the Sea of Galilee. And they likely end up in a remote region where Bethsaida was just the closest town And I think Jesus is probably just trying to get some alone time with the guys. Like, they've been gone all this time, so it's time now to to recover and to get some time together. But their time is very quickly interrupted. The crowds learn where Jesus was, and they followed him there. And you think at this point that Jesus may be irritated at being interrupted. Like, now he has his time with the disciples cut short, but he doesn't. The passage says that Jesus welcomed them. And he didn't just welcome them and then quickly dismiss them and move on. No, he spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. How how do you handle interruptions to your schedule and to your plans? Is it in your day? I know for me, interruptions to my schedule can be irritating and frustrating. And it's not even that I don't want to help those who interrupt my schedule. It's just that it wasn't planned in my calendar. And this really reveals my own selfishness. It reveals my lack of desire to live for the kingdom and to love others. And for me, reflecting on the story this week, and how Jesus handled interruptions convicted me. It challenged me that my time is not my own. That I need to offer it to the Lord. That I need to count others as more significant than myself. So I want you to reflect on maybe how you handle interruptions to your day. But think even bigger than that. How do you handle interruptions to your life? Are you reluctant to give your time to others when they show up in desperation? When needs arise... When hard people come into your life, when other people's burdens and troubles come your way, do you try to dismiss it? Do you try to avoid it? Or do you welcome others with a loving heart, eager to serve them and to love them and to share the gospel with them? Interruptions to life are guaranteed. So the question is, how are you going to respond to them? These seemingly burdensome interruptions may actually be divine interruptions where the Lord uses you to build his kingdom. Interruptions offer an opportunity for us to relinquish control of our time, of our schedule, to offer it to the Lord and be used by him in service to others. This is an exercise of trust and dependence on God. Jesus welcomed the interruption. He preached the gospel to the crowd. He healed them. He spent his entire day with them. Verse 12 says that the day began to wear away. And so here the disciples foresee a problem. The sun's going down. There are a lot of people, 5,000 men, and that doesn't even include the women and children So it's going to be a large group of people. They're in a remote location. They have no supplies for the crowd. And so the disciples go to Jesus. And they tell him, they tell Jesus, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are in a desolate place. And at first glance, like, that seems reasonable, right? But how does Jesus respond? He says, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. The disciples tell Jesus, hey, all we have are five loaves and two fish, unless you want us to go to the grocery store, which they obviously knew they couldn't afford to feed 5,000 plus people. And Jesus tells them, no, no, no. You give them something to eat. It seems the disciples have forgotten all of the miracles that Jesus has done up until this point. It seems they have forgotten What they've just done—that they've just gone on their first journey. They were supplied with power and authority, and they depended on God for provision and food. The disciples are supposed to be off the bench and in the game, but here they revert back to natural means and natural ways. The best they can come up with is, "Well, should we go to the grocery store?" They have seen Jesus raise the dead. They themselves have cast out demons. And just like they went out on their journey without a staff or bag or food or money, trusting that God would provide and supply what they need, they ought to have done that here as well. They quickly, though, realized their mistake. They quickly realized their mistake and they changed their tune and they respond in trust. If you look what Jesus says next, he says, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And what does verse 15 say? And they did so. They don't know what Jesus is going to do, but they realize that he's going to take care of it. They just had a moment. They just had a moment and they forgot who Jesus is. I think that's relatable. But quickly, they remember all that Jesus had done. They remember who Jesus is, and they responded in trust and obedience to him. And so Jesus miraculously intervenes. Verses 16 and 17, And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up twelve baskets of broken pieces." Luke uses language in this story to get us to think back to the Old Testament. At one point, Moses had split up groups of men into about 50. Elijah supplied bread and water to groups of 50 during a famine. If we think back to Exodus after Israel fled from Egypt and they were wandering in the wilderness, they were grumbling because of their hunger. And the Lord provided for Israel. He supplied them supernaturally with food. He sent manna, bread from heaven, to the Israelites. And he did this to satisfy their hunger, yes, but also to get them to trust him and trust his word. And this story helps us answer Herod's question Who is Jesus? He is the one who supplies and satisfies. Verse 17 says, And they all ate. They all ate. And we satisfied. What was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets. The crowd ate their fill. The bread and the fish, they just kept on coming and coming. And this wasn't like buffet quality food. This is like five-star Michelin restaurant quality food. If you think back to Jesus' first miracle, during the wedding at Cana, he turns water into wine. And the master of the feast Takes a sip, and what does he do? He goes and he finds the groom, and he says, You served the best wine last? Nobody does that. This would have been a good meal. This is probably the only fish that I would ever eat. <laughs> I don't like fish. And so the crowds, they ate and they ate and they ate, and it says that they were satisfied. This wasn't a snack, this wasn't an appetizer, this wasn't like eating a donut and somehow you're hungrier after than before. This wasn't like a food truck, this is unpopular opinion, this wasn't like a food truck where you go and you stand and you wait in line forever, you order, then you wait in line or you wait for your food, which takes forever, and then you spent a ton of money for very average and low-quantity tasting food. (laughs) Unpopular opinion, but I am not a big food truck guy. Uh, This week, even, we were going to a concert in Windsor, and I didn't eat dinner beforehand, so I had to subject myself to the many food trucks. And so I got there, and there's, there's a lot of them. There's like 15 of them. But there's a diamond in the rough. There's a Chick-fil-A booth. <laughs> and so I went, and I got two Chick-fil-A sandwiches, modern-day manna from heaven, <laughs> and I was satisfied. So this, this crowd around Jesus was genuinely content, full, satisfied And there were even leftovers, 12 baskets of leftovers. Jesus supplies abundantly more than we even need. And that number 12 is not by coincidence. The number 12 is used frequently throughout the Bible. It can refer to God's power and authority, uh, fullness, completion. These 12 baskets remind us of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus chose 12 apostles out of his many, many followers The twelve apostles are symbolic for the twelve tribes of Israel. Israel now becomes the church. And the crowd here is a mixed bag. There would have been Jews and Gentiles. And all are offered to partake of this meal. All are supplied and satisfied through Jesus. And look again how Jesus does this. Taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And so many commentators here note the fourfold word sequence. Took, blessed, broke, and gave. He took the bread. He said a blessing to God. He broke the bread and he gave the bread. This same fourfold sequence of words is going to be used two other times in the Gospel of Luke. At the Last Supper when Jesus inaugurates the new covenants, and at the banquet of Emmaus, at the end of Luke, Luke chapter 24. And each instance of these words further reveals who Jesus is. In Luke 24, we get the account of Jesus' resurrection, how he conquered the grave. And then the resurrected and glorified Jesus appears to two men. He visits two men as they're traveling on the road to Emmaus, but they don't recognize who Jesus is, and they start having a conversation with this man about all the things that had taken place up until the point of Jesus' death. And Jesus responds to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself." The two men were amazed. This would have been an epic Bible study. And so the two men invite Jesus to have dinner with him and stay the night with them. And so they sit down at the table, and then we read this. He, Jesus, took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. Jesus reveals himself to these men as the one whom all of the scriptures spoke of, the long-awaited Messiah. And when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper on the night before his crucifixion, we read that he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Here... Jesus reveals himself as the one who inaugurates the new covenant, the promise that Christ has made way for salvation, that right relationship to God is available to us. And so as Jesus feeds the 5,000, he uses this fourfold sequence of words, and in so doing, he's answering the question that Herod asked, who is Jesus? And in the next few verses, 18 through 20, Jesus asks the 12 disciples, who do you you say that I am? And Peter confesses, you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah of God. The feeding of the 5,000 is setting the tone for Jesus to be fully revealed that he is the Messiah, that his broken body was given up for us that we may take, that we may may receive, and that we may be satisfied. In just a few minutes, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And in this ordinance, Jesus' death is symbolized and remembered. His body was broken. He was the spotless lamb who was sacrificed for us. Remember John the Baptist's words, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty that we deserve because of our sinfulness and our rebellion against him. His body was crushed. His body was broken. His body was hung there on a cross. And when we break the bread at the Lord's Supper, we remember Jesus' body broken for us. Jesus tells his disciples that this represents the new covenant. Salvation comes to those who place their faith and trust in Jesus. Jesus offers himself freely to us. He invites us into his kingdom. He invites us to participate in his mission and ministry. He invites us to the table. He invites us to receive and be satisfied in him. Jesus tells the crowds in John chapter 6, that Jed read this morning, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And he goes on to say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The crowds ate their fill of fish and bread, and they were satisfied. Jesus provided more than enough for them. But unless those crowds received Christ, in faith and repentance, they were going to continue to be spiritually hungry and spiritually thirsty. Jesus tells us that whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. This is symbolic of trusting in Christ for salvation. Jesus is the only place that everlasting satisfaction is found. If anyone in here this morning feels unsatisfied, feels unfulfilled, feels a longing for something bigger. If anyone in here is spiritually hungry, spiritually thirsty, I invite you to come to Jesus and be eternally satisfied and fulfilled. So now we, as a gathered church body, get to partake of the Lord's Supper. And as we prepare, let's look back. Let's look back to Jesus' sacrificial death. As we break the bread, remember his broken body. As we take the cup, remember his blood that was shed and poured out for us and for the forgiveness of sins. And as we prepare ourselves, look inwardly. If you have not bent your knee and trusted in Jesus for salvation, I would ask you not to take the bread and the cup. It wouldn't make sense for somebody who has not placed their faith and trust in Jesus to take the Lord's Supper. By taking this, we are proclaiming our faith in Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is King. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and eat of the bread and drink of the cup, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And lastly, as we partake of the Lord's Supper together, let's look forward. Let's look forward to the return of the King. When Jesus returns and we get to be with him in glory, the great marriage supper of the Lamb, when we are gathered with the church of all time, feasting in the presence of Jesus and experiencing eternal joy forever. We'll go ahead and invite the band back up. And how we do this is as the band plays, I want you to look inwardly. I want you to examine yourself before the Lord to depend on him for salvation. It's by faith and faith alone that we are saved and And as you feel led, you can get out of your seats, you can come, you can take the cup, bring it back to your seats, peel back the top, take the piece of bread, and as you crush it, think about Jesus' broken body for you. And after that, we'll take the cup together. And so let me go ahead and close us now in prayer. Father in heaven, Jesus, thank you for your broken body for us that you went to the cross innocent spotless lamb of God to take away our sins that we may have life and life abundantly that we may have purpose and meaning God I pray that if there is anyone in here who does not know you that today would be a day of salvation for them that they would see their own works and deeds as never measuring up that we all fall short of the glory of God and that that they would place their faith in you God, you've called us out of darkness into your marvelous lights. I'm grateful for the work you've done on our behalf, King Jesus. I pray that we would experience our satisfaction and our joy and our peace and our contentment and our fulfillment in you, Christ, and in you alone. Help us now to reflect and examine our lives as we partake of the Lord's Supper. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Would you please stand as we respond?